The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome back to the show, Eugene Cho. Reverend Eugene Cho is the president and CEO of Bread for the World, as well as Bread Institute. Both are a nonpartisan Christian advocacy organization urging both national and global decision makers to help end hunger, both in the United States and around the world. In addition, he is the founder and visionary of One Day's Wages, a grassroots movement of people, stories, and actions to alleviate extreme global poverty. Eugene is the author of two acclaimed books, including his most recent, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. How is that for a title? That's about as good as it gets. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you remember that Eugene was our first ever guest on The New Activist. We'll talk about that a little bit today during our conversation. That show is still available, and I would encourage you to go and listen to that to get more of his bio and history and all of that good stuff. But our conversation today, really, we talk about the years that have happened since that last conversation, because a lot has happened in his life, not to mention the fact that he has experienced, along with us, all of 2020. And so today's conversation, we will catch up on the last few years of Eugene's life, but also, as is so often the case with Eugene, he will challenge our thinking of what it means to be someone who is trying to actually be helpful in the world. I look forward to you hearing from him. Before we get started, if you could rate and review The New Activist on whatever podcast platform you are using, whether it is Apple or Spotify, whatever, doing that and sharing the show on social are two of the very best ways to ensure that we get to continue having meaningful conversations like this. So thank you for doing that. Here is the conversation I was fortunate to have with Reverend Eugene Cho. Eugene Cho, folks may know you, Reverend Eugene Cho. You were our very first guest on the first episode ever of The New Activist, and you had no business doing this. You did this as a favor to us, which I still appreciate. And so it has been four years since we have last gotten to chat with you. And so just curious, like, how have the last four years been? How are you doing? <laughs> Encapsulate four Wait, years. It's been four years? Yeah, yeah 2016 in a ballroom. Wow. You and Nikki did wow. the first conversation. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yes, I remember that. And you guys made me cry like a baby. Um, I don't know if that made it to the final cuts, but there were like awkward moments where I was sobbing in tears. <laughs> and I am so grateful to be able to return. This is one of those times I can truly say with integrity, I am number one. You are number one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, a lot has happened in four years, not just this past year here in 2020, but um, after 18 years of planting and pastoring a church that my wife and I started called Quest Church, we stepped down about two years ago, uh, entered a season of just some rest, as well as encouraging missionaries and pastors around the world had a chance to encourage uh, Willow Creek Church during their tumultuous, difficult, painful season by guest preaching there once a month. And then about four or five months ago, 
I embarked on a new call as the new president and CEO of a Christian advocacy organization called Bread for the World. And on the side, I'm still running one day's wages. Yeah, you got a lot happening. Can we go through that a little bit, a piece at a time? Um, sure. First, the the stepping uh, down as pastor and founder of Quest Church, and a lot was talked about it. You did a, some interviews at the time, and a lot was written about it, because I felt like overall, especially as I went back in preparation for this interview, there was almost a sense of like, okay, why really did he do it? Do it right? <laughs> like, and I think that maybe that's just our cynicism about when people leave leadership. Did you feel that at all, that there was people waiting for the the real narrative to come out? Or is that just me reading into it? No, no, I'm chuckling because, you know, there were some um, basically news that, you know, spiraled around a few online, you know, news sources. And in my announcement, I had basically shared the why. And as a joke, I had said, hey, I just want you to know uh, there's no moral failure. And the next day, uh, there were headlines that said, you know, Pastor Eugene Cho steps down, cites no moral failure. And that was the headline. Yeah. And so oh. there were these uh, rumors that began to spread, which is the reason why I was really grateful for the chance to sit down and do a long interview with Christianity Today. The why, I think, is just, you know, as a, as a human being, as a follower of Christ, you pray and discern, you pray and discern, you wrestle through some of the most difficult life decisions, and, and then you make a decision. Um, there's, there's multiple reasons why I made that decision. I will say that there are still moments, even now, where I kick myself and say, man, that was a dream job as a pastor, and I miss it dearly. We still live a mile away. I shop literally across the street at the Trader Joe's across the church, um, which is another reason why I, I love that church. I could do all of my things at the same time. Our kids still go to that church. Uh, but you know, we just discerned that this was a new chapter, and we were faithful as best as we could, as imperfectly as we could in that last season. And uh, we felt that like God was calling us into a new chapter. Do you still go to that church? You know, we don't. Uh, the plan was after a year— uh, we wanted to give the new leadership some some time, but you now I realize that as a founding pastor, uh, there's just a shadow about my presence. That that's there's that, and then to be honest and be very candid, the idea of going back it became more emotionally more difficult than I had imagined. Yeah. Um, you know, as we were contemplating coming back, the plan was wait one year, we'll come back. The church wanted us to return. You know, but people began to ask, hey, what do you think about this change or that change? And what are your thoughts about this or that? And uh, it just became a bit more emotional. And um, my wife and I thought, you know what? We've given what we can to this church. And if there's a time for us to to be a little selfish about our own hearts and about our own self-care, I think we we deserve it. I'm not sure if that's the right phrase. And so that's you know a decision that we made. We'll visit every now and then, especially online. And uh, we look forward to the time when churches are able to reconvene uh, safely. And uh, we'll definitely be, be back to visit here and there. I feel that so deeply. I had intended to go to the church that I was a pastor at when I left, and it was... It was Christmas Eve, the the next Christmas Eve, and I just was. It was too hard. It was too painful, and you were like, "I can't." I was surprised by that, and I so I I fully empathize with with why, and I can't even imagine even founding a place what it would be like to still be there. And I think it's really generous to the staff that's there now in a way to be able to not have that 
that shadow of you there. It's a big decision. But in the years in between, you have moved into, as you talked about, you're the you are now the president and CEO of Bread for the World. And I want to get to Bread for the World. But can you tell me about the trajectory? Because I, I get it a sense as kind of following your timeline that when you when you stepped down from Quest, it wasn't because Bread for the World was courting you and it was time to go do that. It felt like you just stopped one thing. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is accurate. You know, thankfully, you know, out of just privilege, you know, I had opportunities to just um, travel and speak, and I enjoy certainly doing that. But yeah, I wasn't necessarily moving into something specific. And so there was a moment, um, actually a long moment of uncertainty, of some anxiety and fear. You know, we have two kids in college. We have a third that's a high school student. You know, there are responsibilities and obligations. And so there's a lot of human rational mind, uh, lots of synapses running through my head about how, do the, how does this all work? But not to sound overly spiritual, but you know, as we look back at our life, we know that God's been so faithful, so gracious, so present, even and especially in moments of fear and anxiety. Uh, and so we just knew that this was um, the right thing to do. Our prayer has always been that if there was ever a time of transition, you know, we wanted it to be a, during a time of health and flourishing for the church. And the moment that we gave ourselves permission to entertain this in prayer, bringing it to God was when we completed the capital campaign. Um, I think about six years ago, seven years ago, we ended up moving to a different church location. Uh, it's a long, dramatic story where we ended up purchasing the old Mars Hill Church building here in Seattle. And after two years, we, we completed the capital campaign. And that was kind of the, the moment we said, hey, I think it's okay for us to start praying about if, if this is where God wants us to be long-term. So then you move into the work of Bread for the World. Um, for those that may not know, could you explain to us a bit what Bread for the World and, and the Bread Institute is? I guess it's not the Bread Institute. It's just Bread Institute. Those things matter. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for asking the question. You know, I'm I'm surprised that I've come across uh, Christians that haven't heard of Bread for the World and Bread for the World Institute. So we are a Christian advocacy organization urging our lawmakers uh, to help end hunger in our nation and around the world, and we do advocacy, research, policy analysis all the time. Like that's basically our calling as an organization. I think Christians, on the most part, we do great job, great work around compassion, around mercy. We don't necessarily do as well excel in areas of justice work, policy work, around the root causes. And because all of these uh, injustice causes are so complex. It's like IJM. IJM could be involved in so many things. It's chosen to go really, really deep in the area of human trafficking. And so, uh, Bread for the World, our calling, our lane is to go deep around the issues of hunger and poverty. So, our, our main thing is we're trying to motivate, educate, empower uh, the church to raise up their voices. And we do that through several ways. Uh, by us providing education analysis, and then we try to encourage the church to write letters, uh, to call their elected leaders, uh, to basically become activists, uh, to visit their elected leaders. At times, we host people here in D.C., and we're constantly meeting uh, with members of Congress, urging, encouraging, sharing, and the list goes on. 
How has your leadership had to evolve? Because I know, I know you were leading a large church, but you're also pastoring a large church. And now there's just a, there's a difference between pastor and president slash CEO. I'm curious what you've had to, what you've had to learn about yourself in this time. The answer is I am still learning. Um, it has been a really, um, I'm at, you know, everyone knows there's always transitions. Transitions are hard. It's been much more difficult than I imagined. I think part of it is exactly how you framed it. Uh, there are two different, two different jobs, but it's also doing it in the middle of a pandemic where I haven't been able to get back to DC since March. You know, I know my staff, but I don't really know them. Uh, I'm a relational leader, and so not having the opportunity to walk around the offices and say hello and how's your family and how's your life and things of that nature has been very difficult and challenging. And then I think just the landscape of the world of 2020, uh, the pandemic, the unrest, the social unrest, the politics, the polarization, and it happens to be that bread for the world that much of what we do is engaged around the realm of politics, trying to shape policies, giving the lens of um, the kingdom of God. So it's been very, very tough, but um, there are just, again, new lessons that I'm learning on a, on a regular basis. Hmm. I would chat more about 2020, but I do, you know, in your first answer, you talked about kind of three main points, which was quest, bread for the world, but also one day's wages. We talked a little bit about, uh, people heard about, and they know what one day's wages is from the last show. And I talked about it just now in the, in the introduction, but I'm curious how one day's wages has evolved over the past couple of years, because the last time we really spoke about it, it was sort of like young, scrappy startup kind of, you know, it's like in those early days, but a lot has changed in four years. How has it, uh, progressed? Yeah, well, thanks for asking the question. And, and for those that you know, um, you know, might be introduced to it for the very first time, check us out on onedayswages.org. I think my, my, my calling is I, I just want to be faithful in the things that God's called me to be. And then eventually after a while, you want to be able to not remove yourself, but you want to be able to hand it off to additional leaders. I think that's a, a sign of a healthy organization. And so, you know, it's still small. It's still very grassroots because those are very part of our identity. We want to prove to others that you can be an impactful organization while being scrappy, while being smaller, while being grassroots. And uh, those things are, are still very much part of our identity. We're grateful for the fact that, yeah, our staff have, has, we've grown a little bit. We've moved into a, 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 an office, you know, here in downtown Ballard, Seattle, uh, we're really encouraged to share that this past year, you know, we'll be granting out about $1.4, $1.5 million, mostly to smaller grassroots organizations as well. You know, it, it's like um, the analogy of churches. We are very grateful for the large churches that exist in our city and around our nation, around the world. I've had a chance to lead and serve in a few of them. But we want to make sure that the kingdom of God isn't dominated by just large mega churches. Uh, the faithfulness of rural churches and small urban churches, uh, those matter as well. And so in the development world, in the NGO world, in the humanitarian world, you know, again, similar. We're grateful for the world visions, the world reliefs, the IJMs, but we also believe that there's room and space in order for us to make an impact, we need smaller, scrappy, grassroots organizations. So that's who we are, and we want to come alongside 
and help funding, help build capacity for the smaller organizations as well. And that's what we've been doing, and we'll keep on doing the those very things until we feel like we have to change uh, direction. Thank you for the the update on that. And I love the clarification of it because you really do stay laser focused on supporting the smaller organizations, and it is critically important. And it's also got to be an interesting tide to push against because I think people view success as getting larger. Just larger means better, but that's not actually always the measure of success, is it? That's a great comment slash question because I think (laughs) that in itself is probably a couple of long podcasts. Like what are our metrics, you know, and how do they align? And, you know, I think it's good for us to say there's no single one metric uh, and if there was, and I think we would idolize and worship those things, um, we need faithfulness and effectiveness in every single aspect of the column of sizes, of work. Uh, we need more coalitions and partnerships. We need more kingdom-mindedness. But you know, this was a conversation that I wrestled with constantly, especially as a pastor, where so often we have been told or we've convinced ourselves that worth and measure is all about, all about size. And, and I've wrestled through this even recently when I stepped down from Quest Church. Right. One of the things that I did not anticipate was the emotional grieving, not just in leaving the church that I loved and pastored, but I began to realize that so much of my identity and self-worth was actually connected not just to being a pastor of this church, but it was being that my um, my worth was connected to being a pastor of a quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes right now, a successful church, a large church, a big staff church. And that was something that I did not anticipate. And so there was about a year of just kind of deconstructing, again, who am I and what am I about and who do I worship and serve? It's a very important conversation. You uh, spoke uh, briefly about 2020 and just kind of started to recap the year. And 2020 at this point is just synonymous with, you know, terrible year. I'd love to talk about the year and review a bit. And actually, I guess the first question is, do you see 2020 like that through your lens? How is 2020? Uh, I mean, yes and no. Um, There have been moments of just incredible joy, incredible gratitude, there have been these moments of just surprise, um, whether it's be feeling this clarity about being called into the season of serving at Bread for the World, um, having this extended time where I get to engage with our, our children uh, because we're anticipating a move to D.C. in the next year. Uh, we were grieving the fact that we weren't going to have the opportunity to spend some intentional time with our children. Those things were gifts of this past year, but it has certainly been an emotional roller coaster in every way possible for all the reasons that you and I have listed. You know, I would say in addition to the social unrest, the racial injustice, the pandemic, the polarization of this time, and then life happens and all of us, every single one of us that's listening, we experience, yes, great moments of beauty. And then all of us on an individual level, it's not broadcasted out to the larger world, but we all experience moments of pain uh, throughout the year as well. And we've certainly experienced that. One more thing that I'll just share that's been really tumultuous, uh, that's somewhat uh, been uh, just lost on the radar or everything, uh, has just been the the spike of anti-Asian sentiment and racism. 
that so many of us who identify as Asian, not just in this nation, but around the world have experienced. And that's been very, very painful as well. Yes. To that end, we spoke when earlier in the year with all of the founders of the AACC and uh, talked about that. And you tweeted and spoke about the Asian community being harassed because of COVID. Kind of a two-part question. What was that time like for you? And are you still feeling it to the same extent or a different extent now? It's probably not to the exact same extent, but Yes, we feel it. And we felt it before COVID. And we felt it after COVID. But, you know, I think at that moment, you know, it's difficult when you personally experience, but you also see for yourselves, whether it's through news, whether it's through research of people calling in and speaking in about the amount of harassment. And we're not even just talking about verbal harassment. It's been painful to see people being physically assaulted around the nation and around the world. And it got kind of lost, again, because of all the social unrest, uh, particularly around George Floyd. And obviously, there needed to be so much focus around that. Uh, But yeah, it was very difficult. And it was a reminder to me of a question that I have wrestled with for a good chunk of my life since I immigrated to the United States when I was six years old. And it's really the question, am I, am I really seen, am, am I really a, an American here, living here, despite my contribution, despite my self-identification, despite the fact that I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen, when it's all said and done, am I still a part of the fabric of this society? So those were some pressing questions back then. But I'll just share one more kind of aspect that I think maybe ties in a little bit about empathy and about solidarity and how those things are so important. During the zenith of uh, some of these cases around March, April, and May, when we heard of so many and saw these cases of verbal and physical uh, harassment and abuse, my wife and I found ourselves telling our children every single time they left the home, every single time we were saying, listen, you need to understand what's going on. You've got to be very, very careful. Please constantly look around you. It's very important. It it was that kind of a short spiel talk. We need you to be careful. And the reason why I bring that up was because even though prior to this, I've always had, uh, I always understood my African-American, my black and brown sisters and brothers. I understood cerebrally, I understood uh, the talks that they gave their kids. It never really sank in deep in my heart how difficult and painful and real that was, even for a glimpse. And I'm not suggesting that what we've gone through is on the same scale of our, again, our black and brown sisters and brothers. But I think it definitely made me just stop and pause and just ask God, give me deeper empathy. And especially in light of all that's going on in our nation and around the world. So that was a really interesting, um, uh, poignant time, uh, a reflection, uh, an opportunity to, to, um, have an introspective moment to say uh, sometimes even with our best intentions, there's a dissonance between getting it here in our heads and then uh, feeling it on some deeper level. During that time, you I, I was 
I was shocked by it. And so maybe that's the answer. But you posted some of the the hateful comments that you were receiving. I, I don't mean you wrote those comments. I meant like you s- shared screenshots of comments that you had received. And it was it was unnerving to see. I guess maybe that's the answer, but why why post it? What do you felt like that accomplished? Yeah, you know, that's a it's a great question. <laughs> I should share one of those comments. Uh, I can't tell if it was hurtful or brilliant, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, I can't remember it word for word, but somebody responded to a tweet that I basically wrote. And I tried to respectfully uh, engage uh, President Trump about a tweet that he had mentioned about the Chinese virus. And I thought that was inappropriate. Uh, It has now been universally then and now been called coronavirus or COVID-19. And that was just further, you know, uh, accentuating division in our nation. And so again, I respectfully commented on that um, and got just, again, it just went um, viral and, and it's probably not the thing that you want to happen, but it went viral and newspapers began to cover it. And I think that was actually my first week. It was actually my first week on the job at Bread for the World. And they're like, whoa, what's going on here? It was a and, busy week um, for you for a lot of reasons, wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the comment that I was referring was somebody just said, hey, just shut up and something to the extent you have a, just a really pathetic uh, beard. And I thought, man, that is really personal that they're not criticizing <laughs> my attempt for a beard. Um, oh, man. But I think the reason why I shared it is because, you know, sometimes as we're talking about justice work and reconciliation, and as Christians, we should never, ever abandon that calling. It's not an optional thing for us to be people that seek to pursue reconciliation with God and with one another. I also think that it's possible that we can be so quick to jump from A to Z that we don't go through the process that's necessary for, I think, a deep reconciliation to take place. So in other words, we can be so enamored by reconciliation. Everyone loves the idea of reconciliation until it involves truth-telling and repentance and uh, deconstruction and uh, asking for forgiveness, and the list goes on. So sometimes, you know, the pushback that I get is, hey, you're just making these things up. And you know, respectfully, but at the same time, I think part of justice work is we have to be truth tellers. We have to tell the truth. You know, it's kind of like, you know, trafficking work. Um, It's brutal. It's violent. You know, sometimes we have a tendency of Disneyizing injustice, uh, making it so amorphous and nebulous. And I'm not saying that we should commodify it, make it so sensationalized on a regular basis, but I think you and I get the point sometimes that in our attempt to sanitize things, we, we can also do a disservice to that particular injustice. So I, it was my attempt to let folks know um, that uh, this is not uh, make-believe. It's not just grow a thicker skin. Uh, words matter. Words shape worldviews. Worldview shapes our hearts. Our hearts shape in conjunction with all those other things. It justifies the way that we engage our neighbors and certainly those that we might not see as uh, our neighbors, uh, producing, again, very harmful, toxic actions in our world. Another effect of this is, and talking to you as pastor for a moment has of COVID, has been basically the shutdown of the church, or at least the church in person. 
Um, as a former pastor, or maybe are you ever a former pastor? As a person who was the official pastor of a church, but what does it do to a church and to the staff for the church to be empty for what will be almost a year at this point? Yeah. So first point for you and for myself, um, and I can't speak for you, but you know, for myself, my calling as a pastor hasn't changed because I'm no longer leading a local church. And I, I wanted to make that point because I realized that that was one of my biggest sources of like pain when people assumed, hey, you're no longer a pastor. And so I would explain to them, actually, I am, you know, but my, my parish has now changed from Quest Church to this particular area of God's kingdom. But yeah, you know, it's been so hard. I mean, there is nothing that uh, any book has written about. There's no class in seminary or Bible college that has ever prepared us for leading faithfully well to embody faithful presence in the midst of crazy pandemic social unrest and uh, political polarization. And so what does it do? I mean, I think uh, your answer is as good as mine. You know, I think uh, pastors are human. So we're going through the emotional roller coaster of personal pain, of anxiety, of fear. And in the midst of this, um, I think experiencing God's grace and then trying to learn how do we lead our congregations uh, during this time. A few points that I think I've, uh, I've learned as I've been, you know, assisting some churches during this time is that it's a reminder to us um, that uh, the church isn't a building. Now, I know I'm not the first person to say this. I think every single pastor probably in multiple sermons have reminded their congregations the church is not a building. Uh, but the reason why I think we've had to repeat this again and again and again and again is because we're so used to a particular expression of a church where we gather together for 60 minutes, for 75 minutes, we sing three songs, some awkward announcements take place. Uh, we do that three minutes of the most awkward greetings time where introverts like myself rush to the restroom to wash our hands. You know, we, <laughs> And I'm not suggesting that those things are bad, uh, but I think it's, again, a reminder that when you remove all of these things, the church ultimately is about the people of God who gather together, yes, in person, but also, in this case, um, uh, online as well. I had a friend multiple years ago who pastored a church. And it was a crazy, painful story. A fire broke out into in that church, and they lost everything. And it was a church in Texas. And this church gathered every single week right next to the burnt church building at the parking lot because they realized, A, whether in Texas it makes this permissible, but the fact that they gathered together to encourage one another, to sing together, to listen to God's word being preached, that's what it meant. And then to be sent out. Now, again, we're, we're all doing this online. So those things are still challenges. But I think the calling of the church, the, the responsibilities of the church, the privileges of the church are still able to go forth. And uh, this is so important. I think as we uh, try to honor and be respectful and comply with all the you know, local and national guidelines. It's really an expression of being a good neighbor. Um, and I know it's hard. It, it is so hard. We're struggling as well. We miss going to church. We miss, 
you know, I used to always make fun of singing oceans for thousands and thousands of times. <laughs> I can't wait to sing oceans with a with a group of people together as we look at one another. Uh, but uh, it, it's a hard time. And there's no doubt about it. But uh, we know that this is for a season, and we're um, grateful to see churches still seek to be the church during this tumultuous time. In your 2020 recap, you you also mentioned um, the death of or the outcry that happened following the death of George Floyd and so many others, and the subsequent demonstrations and outpouring of support. I have a real broad question here that I guess I should have gotten more specific on, but as those demonstrations started to happen and as people who were raising their voice went from not just the most woke among us, but really like, is it just people were, you know, protesting that had never considered protesting before as you saw that and saw the reaction to that, how were you processing all of it? I'm actually still processing it. Yeah. Um, yeah that's fair. Maybe living in the Northwest, we still have protests going on in our city, in different parts of the Northwest. You know, uh, so a few thoughts come to my mind. The first one wasn't so much about what I was observing. I think it was just really just needing to lament and just deeply grieve. Um, As painful and as encouraging as seeing the protests may have been during that moment, um, I just felt that I personally just really needed to lament and grieve, uh, certainly for George Floyd's family, uh, but I'm thinking also about Ahmaud Arbery, Sandra right. Land, I mean, Brianna Taylor. And so it wasn't just a momentary thing, and I'm sure it was for you and for others, like really sitting in the discomfort of the injustice of what we saw and what so many uh, experience as their reality on a regular basis. And you know, because I've done a few conversations and podcasts, I think the most prevalent question that I received this past year is, hey, how do you find, how do you find and discover hope in this world? And I've been trying to remind people that hope is not a separate compartment once you go through and graduate from the other places. I think in the same space, of hope, there has to be deep lament. And I think it's that deep lament that helps us to be that much more intimate with that which breaks the heart of God. Um, and I think also helps us to find um, solutions that are more long lasting uh, than a temporary tweet that we send out or a poster that we create. Now, I'm not criticizing the protests, I think these are essential, these are important. Uh, and it was encouraging to see such a a universal, you know, I mean, every single news station just spoke loudly and clearly about the the evil of what transpired with uh, George Floyd. And it was, again, so encouraging to see so many people come out. For me, as a Korean American, I was stunned. I I was genuinely stunned to see so many first-generation Korean Americans, some that maybe still struggle with their uh, English, some that uh, would have years ago said, this is not what we do. But to see how this was multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-geographical of people that said, hey, this is 
unjust, and we need to do better. We stand in solidarity with our black sisters and brothers, our brown sisters and brothers. I think in addition to that, what I began to wrestle with again is that sometimes uh, I feel like the heart of uh, the messages that uh, we need to be shouting clearly and loudly uh, would sometimes get lost in the midst of violent protests, things being hijacked. And that was also really painful to see. Because uh, again, as a follower of Christ, who both holds into deep, deep regard justice work and the pursuit of peace, uh, it was painful to see certain individuals or pockets of people uh, resort to violence. And again, taking the focus away from, I think, uh, the important work that needs to be done and continues to be done. Which then leads uh, probably pretty well into the third topic you addressed, which was that of politics. We are now post-election, and there are some people who feel overjoyed at the Biden-Harris win, some who are troubled at the Trump-Pence loss or are not acknowledging it as a loss, and then there are many others who share some other nuanced perspective outside of those two. You wrote a book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. I'm not telling you this, you know this, but for people listening, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's a really wonderful book. Um, and in that, it is the subtitle of it is, is it's a Christian's guide to engaging politics. So now, post-election, as all of these nuanced perspectives, I guess, try to coexist, I guess the question is, how can we coexist in this when we have seen pretty intense division like maybe no other time in political history? Uh, Eddie, I'm having Wi-Fi connection issues. I can't really okay. hear you. I can't hear okay. you. I, I'm just kidding. I'm, oh my I'm gosh. kidding. I'm trying to avoid the question. You are punting. For my trick, Eddie. Yeah, I've become a podcast expert and I've learned how to avoid hard oh questions. gosh, man. <laughs> you really can. If you don't want to answer it, I fully understand <laughs> no. it. But at the no. same time. <laughs> it's an essential question. It's a critical question. And I guess, you know, I don't have a great answer to it because if I did, mm -hmm. I would write the sequel to that book. How do we coexist? I think we need to acknowledge the fact that this is an unprecedented time and we're experiencing political polarization in ways that we haven't experienced in our lifetime. And we need to do something about it. I write about this in the book, and I'm not trying to scare people here, but a year ago, about 13, 14 months ago, I led a small group of pastors on a learning, listening trip to Rwanda. And we were there to mark the 25 years of the horrific Rwandan genocide, where in that nation then and now, approximately 90, 90 to 91% of that nation self-identifies themselves as Christians. And 25 years ago, the week after Resurrection Sunday, a brutal 100-day genocide embarked, where about a million people, including 800,000 minority Tutsi group were killed. And I'm still recalling the words that we've heard from pastors and leaders and activists and just everyday Rwandan people who would warn us, be very, very careful that your ultimate allegiance isn't to anything else beyond Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Mm. And I, I don't know, I, I still recall very vividly those conversations. And I'm not, again, suggesting and trying to instill and spread fear into people. 
But I also know how conflict has the capacity, as we've seen in the years past, for it to grow and fester and grow and fester into a point now that it almost seems common, maybe not commonplace, but I'm stunned at the number of people who jokingly or half-jokingly or half-seriously or seriously just bring up the possibility of civil war. I mean, those are just crazy conversations right, right. that we're actually hearing. Right, right. And I think to myself, okay, these seeds are now embedded into people's hearts and minds. So, you know, how do we go about this? Again, I don't have a sweeping answer, but one thing that I've been convicted about is obviously uh, as a person of faith, just praying, praying for our nation, uh, praying for our leaders, uh, praying for our neighbors, praying for uh, those that might not agree with me or think about things in the same way that I do. And I know that someone's listening to this podcast thinking that was a weak sauce answer. Uh, because it's a circuitous answer, but it's not. I just want people to know that we should never abandon this conviction that in the complexity of the world, we're also spiritual beings living in a spiritual world. And therefore, we should never, never abandon this, again, this conviction that we need to be in prayer. The second thing that comes to my mind is that I don't want to abdicate my responsibility to government leaders. So yes, we need our nation's leaders to do better. We absolutely need them to do better. And we have to keep urging them for those that have the opportunity to speak to them and to have connections and relationships that we have to ask our nation's lawmakers, are you going to be an agent of, again, just a sort of a sense of unity during our time? Or are you going to, going to continue to sow division and animosity and fear into our, our culture. But I'm also really concerned. I just feel like we're asking our lawmakers to do that work exclusively, and we're not doing our part. I can't inform the nation. As an individual, as a pastor, as a thought leader, I can still do my part. And every single person, it's going to take millions and millions of small micro conversations, micro engagements, reaching out, extending a peace to those that don't think like us, look like us, feel like us, worship like us, and even vote like us. Like we've all drank the Kool-Aid and now we're part of this system. And so there isn't no single magic answer, but I'm convinced it's going to take just millions upon millions of small interactions to help build a better path forward. Those are some thoughts that come to my mind. And the last one, I know it's uh, me sounding like a cheap uh, way of, of, of advertising my book. Friends, don't be a jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't need more jerks for Jesus. Um, so I think despite the convictions that we hold, I think we can still hold to those convictions, try to embody those convictions, still be a decent human, decent neighbor in that pursuit. I'll just share one last thing as a source of encouragement. Just yesterday, uh, this week, it's exciting news. Um, Bread for the World, we conceived of a resolution last year. And this past week, in it may be 
if not among the top three, the most bipartisan bill that was passed this week. It was a resolution, House Resolution 189, where we're urging our, our nation's lawmakers to take great leadership in fighting for and pursuing the protection of maternal and child nutrition, fighting child malnutrition, particularly in the first thousand days uh, from inception to the second birthday of a child. It's a huge win for maternal and child health in our world. And the fact that I think we had 189 co-sponsors in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, making it one of the most bipartisan bills. I think it gave me a, a dose of hope that our lawmakers, our leaders can work together, can seek to come on the same page for the sake of the common good, for the sake of our nation and the larger world. That's what we're hoping to see. And we have to contribute to that kind of trajectory. This then leads to the last question. And this is really the last question of the last interview. And we've spent, we've been deep in it and in 2020. We have been talking about race and COVID and everything. I mean, we've been talking about it this year. I'm curious how you look at 2021. I don't know if I should be hopeful or not. I don't know how to feel. I don't know if I'm kidding myself that 2021 is the new 2020. I, I would just love to hear from you as we close out our time. How are you staring down the next year? You know, I look at the upcoming year in the same manner in which I approached every year. Uh, with a honest spirituality. We're going to experience highs and lows. We don't quite know what those are going to be. We anticipate, certainly with the issue of uh, all the conversations that we've listed, they're not going to magically disappear when we celebrate New Year's Day in the privacy of our home with our family members. You know, those aren't going to disappear. Uh, and so I'm certainly just confronted with you know, a healthy dose of reality. But, you know, I think as followers of Jesus, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor and pastors are supposed to say this, but we're reminded from Hebrews to hold on unswervingly to hope. And I'm thinking about this, particularly during this Advent season, when we consider what the cultural world context looked like when Jesus entered into the world about 2,000 years ago. And I know this is the last question, and I don't want to go into a long sermon by any means, but just to give people a little glimpse, not to diminish what we're all going through. So we can be present, we can grieve and mourn and lament all that we've experienced in this year and perhaps some of the challenges in the year ahead. But when I think about the social, cultural, world context in which Jesus entered. Just a couple things. I mean, this is a time when Caesar Augustus, he issues a decree for a census, which is the background of the whole uh, Mary and Joseph story. But it wasn't because of better governance. That, that wasn't the motivation behind the census. It was because of something called the Pax Romana, where they wanted to have better better taxation purposes to build imperial control, to build a military uh, expansion. That was the reasoning behind it. Caesar Augustus was called and he requested to be called the son of God. He was called savior by many uh, in that context. The Jewish people, they were under constant rule, Egyptians, Syrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. This is a time when King Herod issues a massacre of all Jewish baby boys born at that time. 
idols uh, were placed intentionally into Jewish temples as a way to sort of uh, degrade and dehumanize the worship of the Jewish people. 400 years of waiting and silence between the Old and New Testament. Deep division, I mean, really deep division between Jews and Gentiles during that time. And the disparity between the rich and poor during that time were at unfathomable levels. And it's at that moment that Jesus, by God's sovereignty and God's love for the world, at that moment in human history, Jesus enters into our broken mess. I love uh, Eugene Peterson's version of the Gospel of John. And the word entered, moved into the neighborhood. Yeah. So it's a mixture of, yes, my eyes are fully open. I understand what's going on. But I also cling on to this hope that has been given to us from the beginning of time and then certainly embodied in flesh and bone through the birth of Jesus Christ. We need that hope and we got to keep clinging on to this hope. Uh, I believe that Jesus has never abandoned or left us. He's been ever present during this time. And so for those that are listening, I'm not trying to diminish all the fears and anxieties that we have. The good news, I believe, is that God is with us. He is truly Emmanuel. Well, I am, as always, so grateful to Reverend Eugene Cho. For more on his work, and he does so much work, it's easier just to go to eugenecho.com. And from there, you can be directed to his books that he has written, to One Day's Wages, to Bread for the World, and where he is speaking all of that good stuff, eugenecho.com, and I will put that in the show notes. As a quick programming note, we are done for the rest of the year. We're going to take some time off and hope that you will get to do that as well. I am proud of what we have learned together this year and hope that you will go back and listen to any episodes that you may have missed. It has been an honor to traverse 2020 with you as a part of this podcast. The conversations that we have been having all year will continue over on The New Activist, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of them have the same handle, New Activist is, and our website is newactivist.is. A huge thanks, as always, to Propaganda, last week's guest. He scored today's episode. His music, merch, coffee, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Eugene Cho, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Happy holidays. <laughs>